we are very familiar with the Pharisees, the uh, sort of bogeymen of the New Testament, <laughs> uh, less familiar with the Sadducees. Um, but today's message is really about a warning. Well, I think God would give us an inoculation, if you like, against the Sadduceical spirit. You ever heard that before? That's because it's not a word. <laughs> but we always talk about having a Pharisaical spirit, don't we? But um, you know, we're quite familiar with that. Um, but I think God would inoculate us and maybe bring a bit of healing, I suppose, to a Sadduceical. I'm just going to keep saying that until it becomes normal. <laughs> Sadduceical spirit. The Sadducees, their name comes from uh, the word Zadok, as a Zadok the priest in the Old Testament. It means the righteous or the just ones. And they were a conservative group. Of, usually, mem- uh, they were members of the ruling classes found in the Sanhedrin, the uh, religious elite of the Jesus' time. Um, but they had a very specific set of rules. They were religiously conservative, but in t- two sort of characteristics kind of marked them out. The first was um, they stuck, they were solo scriptura. <laughs> That's a bit of a controversial thing. They stuck to just what it said in the Bible. And because in the, in the Hebrew Bible, there was no specific or explicit mention of the resurrection, that was out. So the resurrection was... Um, began to be spoken about much more explicitly after, if you like, the, the, the writings of the, uh, the Old Testament in the intertestamental period. So that's an interesting thing for us to think about anyway. But, um, so they were, but they also didn't believe in angels, which are mentioned in the Old Testament, weirdly, or demons, or anything like that, anything supernatural. So it seems they were very conservative, very literal in their reading of the Old Testament, but also they had this kind of rationalistic... Um, things are very straightforward, you die, and then that's it. You know, there's not this spiritual dimension to life. And so they were very sceptical. Uh, they saw themselves as perhaps a little intellectually superior to those around them, but also in the right, you know, rescuing people from kind of superstition and uh, kind of religious dead ends and, and that sort of thing. Um, so they're very kind of active in Jesus' time. Um, and I think this is the one account, I think in the whole, all four Gospels, where the Sadducees are on their own challenging uh, Jesus or asking a question. So... That's their kind of character. And it's, I think it's interesting that in many generations of the church, uh, throughout the time of God's people, you, you get this character emerging again and again. So last century, in the 20th century, especially in the early half, uh, or the middle of the 20th century, you had uh, in the church liberalism, which is basically people sort of saying, you know, arising out of a kind of sense of, of course, modern people can't be expected to believe in miracles, you know, Jesus didn't really walk on water, Water. there's probably like a sandbar just under the surface, and people were very suspicious of, the, yeah, very, um, you know, they were, they were peasants and they were poorly educated, so they were superstitious, you know, they could easily see these things and attribute them to miracles, but we're much cleverer these days, and we've got, you know, light bulbs and that sort of thing, so we know, you know, how things are really, and we're sort of rescuing people from superstition, and really thinking like you're doing people a favour, and you're making Christianity much easier to believe. And, um, and thereby, you know, helping everybody out and rescuing people from superstition. Um, and I think in our own generation, there's still some of that around, of course. Especially if you read the, the, any kind of journalistic account of our faith at all. Um, but I think t- today, and we'll come back to this towards the end of the sermon, um, there's definitely a similar thing in certain progressive attitudes towards um, sexuality, and uh, especially around the issue of marriage, interestingly. Because that's what this passage sort of uh, kind of swirls around, the issue of marriage, sexuality, um, the purpose of sex, and so on. 
Um, but actually, the kind of progressive agenda is sort of saying, well, we can't really expect people to, to believe all that stuff anymore. We know the world has changed. You know, fa- modern families aren't the same as what they used to be, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, there's this kind of, we want to rescue people out of this unnecessary, superstitious kind of shackles and deliver them into this beautiful freedom that we, the slightly more intellectually elite, uh, you know, have discovered. And we can give them this lovely gift. Well, God wants to rescue us from that, which is nice, isn't it? <laughs> he wants to inoculate us against that. But I just I say all that to give you a sense of there's a continuity with the past, with the past. You know, we experience these same things in, in our own day, um, and also so this is very practical. Um, Chris asked me in the week he's preparing worship. He said, "Hey, we're going to preach on about this passage." You know, it's, it's interesting. It's seven brothers marry the same woman, etc. But you know, but it is a very practical. It is a very practical message, I think. So. Jesus, essentially, he replies very cleverly and, in a way, uh, you know, very uh, intricately to their question, and he's essentially condemning their approach. Well, what's, a, what's the heart of his condemnation of Sadduceism? That's also not a word. What's the heart of his condemnation? They, ni- they know neither the scripture nor the power of God. They know neither the scripture nor the power of God. And if you think of those three, the two examples I've given you from our recent history and today, actually the same thing is going on. God wants to rescue us from the kind of thing where someone thinks they know better and actually they know worse. <laughs> it, it, they, they did know scripture actually. Their, their approach was based on scripture. The scripture said that if a, a man died childless, his brother had to marry the woman and they, they, to, to carry on his line. But their point was if God has given us this law about like, giving children, then it must mean that there's no resurrection, because otherwise why would God bother you know, with this really complicated law about marriage? So they knew scripture, but they didn't know it through the lens of God's power. They had, if you like, a, a watered-down version of who God was. It wasn't the mighty God who could do anything. He was just kind of like a, a powerful God, you know, a 9 out of 10 God. No, a 10 out of 10. But we believe in an infinite God, you know, infinitely more than, than, than 10 out of 10 on some strength scale. And so they're kind of lowering God down to their level because he doesn't fit inside their heads. And, and Sadduceism is essentially the mistake that uh, imagining, if you like, that just because something doesn't fit in my head, it must be irrational. That's the mistake. And that's the thing God would sort of heal us of, if you like. And it's, it's such a wonderful, powerful message for wherever you're at in your faith to think about this stuff. Just because something doesn't fit in your head or my head, it doesn't make it irrational. In fact, there are two reasons why something doesn't, may not make sense to you, really, broadly speaking. The first could be that it's irrational. We could say sub-rational. The second is it could be super-rational. That is, it's God's idea, and his brain, to speak, uh, you know, in that way, is bigger than yours. And so you'd be a bit silly to imagine you can fit all his ideas in your own head. And you can compare it to this. You can imagine, like, when it comes to seeing something clearly, there are two reasons why you might uh, not be able to see something clearly. The first reason might be there's not enough light. And so you literally can't, you know, you're appearing at something in the dark, you can't, can't make the shape out of it, uh, the shape of it out or whatever. But the second is something might be so bright that you can't look directly at it. Or maybe you can just glimpse it and you have to look away. You can't stare at the sun indefinitely, can you? So, uh, so it can have too little light or too much light. And actually the same goes for the things that we believe and the things that God has said about himself. Actually, the things he said about himself are like the too much light. It's not that they're irrational. It's that 
We can't continually stare at them. And that's important for us as Christians in terms of some of the things we believe. So there's like the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. That is, that is too much light. <laughs> you can stare at it and st- you will not be able to take it all in. Your brain will hurt. But it's not irrational. It's above rationality. The doctrine of the incarnation. You know, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So when he says things like, uh, I do not know the day or the hour, only the Father in heaven knows. And you kind of go, but you're God. What does that mean? (laughs) How do we work that out? Well, it's a mystery. So it's a mystery of our faith, but it's not irrational. And the more you live by it, either of those things, actually, and, and a whole bunch of other things as well, the more we live by them, actually, the more life we get. So there's some of the doctrines, and of course, uh, perhaps a little bit more uh, applicably for our everyday life is that when it comes to God's law, there are commands that God gives us that we may not fully understand why he has given that command, especially when we're young in our faith. Uh, and actually, we, we're kind of called to this kind of obedience where we kind of I'll trust God in faith, I'll do what he says or I'll live by his commands. And we struggle with that perhaps because we don't understand it fully. Like a child says to their parent, but why? <laughs> Actually, God never says to us, because I said so, not indefinitely, but when we're young in our faith, well, actually, for our whole lives, but, you know, but less and less as we grow in our faith, um, you know, God doesn't just say, because oh, oh, I said so, he'll let us know, but there is a sense of, we can't fit it all inside our heads straight away. There is a need for obedience. So it's, it's, um, it's really important for us to, uh, to have this understanding that just because something doesn't make sense to us fully right now, doesn't mean it's irrational. And that may be relevant to you because you're struggling with some aspect of Christian faith. Or you're struggling with some command that a Christian friend has kindly reminded you of. Or that you've read in the Bible this week. And he's like, really? Do I I have to change that part of my life? Uh, Well, yes. But, you know, um, or or maybe you've read something in the Bible and you're like, well... um, you know, I was talking to someone this week. They read something in Joshua. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty tough stuff in there. Did God really say that stuff? Did God really command that stuff? Well, yeah. But, you know, just because it doesn't all fit in your head, it doesn't mean that there's uh, some weakness in your faith there. Just, you know, but if you keep going, God will, God will be able to teach you that stuff. Now, the picture that comes to mind, really, of uh, another picture of Sadduceical spirit is these Sadducees, they think they're really clever, but they're kind of like cavemen coming along, picking up a, like a, an iPod, there we go. Do people still use iPods? No. Picking up an iPhone. <laughs> go, what is, like a, it's this truth, this resurrection is like a truth. You know, it's, uh, it's too clever for them. And they pick it up and look at it. Oh, oh, oh. Do, 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 do. Doesn't work. Oh. You know, they sound so clever. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do like that, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. They think they're really clever, but actually they're stupid. Is that okay to say that? Sure. They're, they're, <laughs> they, you know, they, they think they're really clever, but actually they're being stupid because they, you know, it's just something that's too clever for them, too big for them. And, and I say that to be slightly derogatory, just to give you a bit of confidence about your faith, because actually when people struggle with stuff like the truth, you go, oh, who can believe in one God and three? But it's, you know, it's, 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 the problem isn't yours, it's theirs. When people say, oh, how can you believe in like no sex before marriage? Well, the problem isn't yours, it's it's there. It's not with the Bible. It's not with God's commands. He's brilliant. Everything he says is amazing. His law is perfect. 
And I want to meditate on it day and night to learn everything I can get out of it. Like, and God wants us to have that confidence in it. When we seem to encounter things that are contradictory or difficult or challenge us, not to go, oh, well, I should Sadducee this thing and like dumb it down a little bit. It's now a verb. <laughs> but actually that we can have confidence that God is... He is bigger than us and clever than us. And he's got amazing things in store. And that's what Jesus does, isn't he? He just blows their minds. He's like, oh, you want to talk about the resurrection, do you? <laughs> Let's see how much you know. And he starts to go, in the resurrection, there'll be no marriage, and they'll be like the angels, and they'll be like children of God, and those are worthy. And he's like, just, you know, because Jesus knows. He sees clearly. It's like, he's playing, almost like playing games with them, really. He humbles them. No, he, well, yeah, he nearly humiliates them, really. Not in a mean way, of course. You know, he, he shows them the paucity of their understanding of God. And he, and he embarrasses them. He says, you know, this basic, this Moses and the burning bush, this isn't some obscure scripture, <laughs> you know. They would all know the God of Abraham and I, you know, was, was God speaking metaphorically? No, I am the God of Abraham. Therefore, Abraham is not gone. He is in some sense alive. He's, in, he's alive. I'm the God of the living, not the dead. So, you know, he's, he's taking what they're familiar with and he's just, he's trying to explode their imagination so they, they raise their sights up again to how amazing God is and how amazing his plans are. The resurrection is nothing like, they just think it's going to be like, it's going to be like this life, but it's going to be a little bit, I don't know, pinker or something, you know, rosier. It's a, they, they think there's going to be marriage, everything's going to carry on the same. It's like, no, it's going to, it's, 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 there's continuity, but it's going to, you know, the life of the age to come is going to be, it's going to be like coming home and discovering a whole new universe all at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's going to be those two things mixed in together. And he's just trying to open their eyes a little bit to, the, to that. And through them, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Scripture, open our eyes to it as well. So we've got this thing. So things sometimes seem irrational, doctrine, or uh, God's commands. They sometimes seem difficult to us or problematic. And that could be, something could seem that way because it's irrational. Uh, we should be careful of that. You may come across you know, false teaching, that sort of thing. Uh, but sometimes things can seem that way because they're super rational, because there's too much light. But the opponent will say, well, how convenient. How convenient, the lovely pastor of the church telling you, standing up the front, controlling all your minds by telling you the things that are just too big for you to understand. You just have to trust him and take his word for it. Is that how it goes? Is that blind faith? Is that what it's all about? Well, no. This is the amazing thing. There is a way to tell the difference between whether something's irrational or super rational, whether it's too little light or too much light. Because if there's too much light, you can live by it. It sheds the light on everything else around it. You know, C.S. Lewis maybe did or maybe didn't say something like, I believe in Christianity in the same way that I believe in the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by its light I see everything else. So here's the thing. If you look at the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, it sheds light on everything, especially what it means to be human. You know, and we're talking about praying, we're praying for international treaties, well, that's what I did a minute ago. But, um, you know, our human rights, all those things are founded in a Judeo-Christian worldview, which flows out of an understanding of who God is, it's grounded in the Trinity. That's why we have these restraining factors in international law. Because, you know, well, just to give one random example. They, they shed light on the world 
around them. Uh, so we can, we can live by them. That's how we can tell something's super rational. They accord with scripture. So Jesus says, these guys, they don't know scripture. Um, God, when something is too big for us, if you like, because, uh, it's from God, one of the ways we can test that, if you like, and say, am I being misled somehow, is to go to the Bible. You know, so if you've got some Christian who's struggling with a belief, let's say, you know, some famous guys aren't there, like, uh, well, I'm not going to pick, I'm not going to name names. Let's say some, some people have struggled with the doctrine of hell, for example, and they come to you and they say, guys, I've come up with this amazing, you know, solution to, you know, the problem of hell and why does God send some people to hell, that sort of thing. It, you know, but it's not in the Bible. Well, who's, who's more likely to have an ulterior motive? The Bible or a guy who's just thought of something no one else has thought of before? You know, in his own heart. Who's more trustworthy? Scripture that was written by the Holy Spirit for his whole church for all time, or some guy who's just thought of something sitting on the loo in the 21st century. <laughs> who's more trustworthy? So we know something super rational because if we find it in the Bible, they know neither Scripture nor the power of God. And also because it reveals God's power. The amazing thing about God's truth is it, it raises our minds. There's this, there's this sense of like being pulled out of yourself and having your expectations blown away. You know, that, that's, that's how you should feel as you, as you think about God's law or as you think about doctrine, as you think about God's commands. It should be the sense of, not of like, oh, this is difficult, and, uh, but actually this kind of, your mind is opening out and you're sort of saying, wow, it's so much more beautiful than I, than I could have ever thought. That's how we, how we can tell. They reveal the power of God. And we can tell something's super rational because, because it works as well. It works. So if something is irrational, it will lead to superstition. It leads to a life that's fruitless and frustrated and full of anxiety or, you know, vain repetition. But if something is from God, if it's super rational, then it leads to fruitfulness and life and goodness and truth and beauty. And as we can look at the way Christians have lived under God's law, and have lived under the doctrines of the, of the Christian faith. And we can see that life upon life upon life has been transformed and made fruitful by these truths. You know, um, one of the Tuesdays, we talked about one of our core values being that we love the church. Uh, this, is, this is why it's so important, because actually we have a 2,000-year legacy, a historical record of this stuff works. You know, so we don't have saints' days in our church. <laughs> we don't talk about that stuff. But actually, if you look back at all the people that lived out the Christian life, and some super exemplary people as well, we can see that people who have obeyed God's law and lived according to the doctrines of our faith have lived lives that to say to anyone, this is not random stuff. This is not the result of a superstitious religion that wants to shut everything down. You know, there's, there's fruitfulness here, there's beauty here. Uh, it's amazing stuff. So that's, that's how we can tell something is, is super rational, if you like. There's a TV series on the BBC just launched um, called His Dark Materials. Has anyone watched that and come across it? Um, it's, it's really good and really terrible all at the same time. Because <laughs> the guy who wrote it is um, a guy called Philip Pullman. He's a famous atheist. And he wrote it specifically with the intention of basically convincing people that Christianity was not true. 
And uh, the BBC, in their infinite levels of discernment, have decided to turn this into a multi-million pound uh, drama series. The bad, the bad guys of the church, they literally wear dog collars. They're called the Magisterium. They pray Christian prayers. You find out in the third series, sorry for the spoiler, that the bad guy who's trying to ruin the world and cramp everyone's freedom is called Jehovah, the Eternal Father, Lord Almighty, Elohim. It's that explicit. Um, and, but it's this, it's this compelling, engaging world. Um, and the guy who wrote it, Philip Pullman, is a scholar in Oxford. And so the, the story is set in this alternate universe where the bad guys are the church, but Oxford is Oxford. It's like the dream inspires and that sort of thing. And the funny thing about it is, it's all inverted. You know, he's basically trying to say that if you're religious, then you're going to live this horrible, superstitious, cramped life where you're suspicious of everyone. And you know, uh, the bad guys all live in like concrete houses with smooth walls and square doors, and there's no beauty or anything like that. And all the good guys, all the atheists, live in Oxford with all the dreaming spires and the curly doors and the flowers and everything everywhere. But you know, the, the funny thing about all that is, the stuff that this guy loves, Philip Pullman, where does it come from? It comes from Christianity. It comes from faith in Christ. It comes from the beauty of the Trinity. You know, he, he, he paints this picture of children being kidnapped. Again, sorry for the spoiler, but I really don't think you should watch it. But uh, <laughs> children are kidnapped by the church, taken to some sterile place, separated from their, uh, their sort of natural spirit, uh, and brainwashed into these soulless, lifeless zombies. Um, by religion. That's, that's what's going on in this story. Um, but <laughs> it's all inverted. You know, Christians, we're the ones who love life. We're the ones who love nature, who love the way God made us, who celebrate childhood. You know, it's secularism that's turning our children into zombies, isn't it? It's not the, it's not the faith, faith in the Trinity, is it? It's detachment from the, the world around us. You know, it's disembodiedness that's, that's doing this to our kids. It's this complete inversion. I say all that to say, just as an illustration, you know, something, he's rejecting Christianity because he thinks it's irrational. But at the same time, he loves the fruit of it. He loves the fruit of it. And, and we can take that on board and say, actually, do you know what? One of the evidences that something is true is because what comes from it is it raises our sights of God, but it also produces goodness and beauty and truth. Now you're going to go watch it, aren't you? <laughs> Maybe an error of judgment on my part there <laughs> to mention it. So things are too big for us to fit in our heads, but that doesn't mean they're irrational. Okay, and I've addressed the issue of, well, that's very convenient. You're showing, actually, there is a way to test something that's true or not, because we can live by the light of it, etc. But still, the skeptic might say, okay, but... Why, do, why does God design it like that? Why doesn't he give us bigger brains? Why, why can't these ideas all fit in our heads? Why, can't, why, does there, why is there some element of faith? Because actually, the, we don't have blind faith as Christians. We don't, we're not blindly called to believe in things. We are called to follow evidence, and it's, it is rational, and that sort of thing. But there is this sense of trusting, isn't there? That God sometimes seems to invite us out of where we are and take some step of faith. That's true. So why should that be? Why does God design it like that? Why are, why are things hard for us to understand? Why does it take us decades or a lifetime or even more to begin to get our heads around the doctrines of our faith or the commands of God? Well, because God wants a personal relationship with us. And actually, the element of a personal relationship is one of trust. It's essential. 
And so God invites us into a relationship where we gradually learn these things. We take his word for something. We invest our trust in him. He leads us forward and we grow and we learn through that process to love him. And through that process of trust and the reward that comes through trust uh, and the fruitfulness that comes through, we grow in love with God. As simple as that. So, I know this doesn't have much to do with resurrection right now, but do you see the underlying point? Why Sadduceeism, fickleness, <laughs> is, um, is bad? Why God wants to rescue us from it, inoculate us against it? Can you see anything in your own life where you may be vulnerable to that? Any particular challenge in belief or situation in your own life where temptation to lower your sight of who God is or let go of his, the absolute reliability of his commands? Maybe God will um, speak a bit more about that. So, two illustrations of what I'm saying which I think, I'm not just doing it for illustration purposes, but actually I think it's really helpful in terms of uh, what we believe come in this passage. The first, of course, is resurrection. We have this, uh, the, the idea of the resurrection is uh, difficult. Culturally, it's difficult. Ever since the time, you know, ever since Jesus' time when the Sadducees had trouble believing in it, it's been difficult. Um, Paul seems to encounter it again. It's kind of skepticism about the resurrection again and again when he's doing his ministry around the Mediterranean. After Jesus' death and he's planting these churches again and again, he gets pushed back on, really? Jesus is going to come back and then we're all going to, like people who've died are going to be like reunited with their bodies. And, and when it came, you know, Jewish people had a bit of a difficulty with that because as we said, the doctrine of the resurrection hadn't really fully developed by Jesus' time. It was this kind of vague hope but if the Jewish people struggled, how much more did the, the sort of Greek and Roman-speaking world struggle? Because for them, the material world was um, dirty and polluted and something you had to be rescued from. The source of all your problems is basically your body. You know, and you can see why they believe that, because the body is the source of a lot of our problems, isn't it? <laughs> Sickness and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and for, for the pagan world in the early church, there was just this hope that when you died, you were, you were suddenly released from this prison and you got to live a purely spiritual life. So along comes Paul, Acts 17, he's standing before these well-educated Greek uh, amateur philosophers and they want to know what he's talking about. So he says, well, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. His speech is going quite well up until that point. And when he says there's going to be a resurrection from the dead, they literally laugh at him. So why would anyone want to believe that? That's stupid. <laughs> we, um, they, they couldn't wait to be you know, set free from the prison of their bodies. And uh, even today, you know, Christians are often surprised when they're reminded, you get to like 1 Corinthians 15, you start talking about we will have you know, physical bodies. Christians are often, oh, well, I thought, you know, you die, go to heaven, you know, and there's kind of, what is that? You get to look at God or something, you know, it's disembodied. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. I'm sensing even now some surprise. <laughs> I've tried to set it up quite well. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to have new bodies, like unto the Lord's body. There's going to be continuity with what's gone before. 
like coming home, but like discovering a whole new universe. It's going to be amazing. This is like one of the most central truths of our faith. It's absolutely wonderful. It is something really, really to look forward to, isn't it? I mean, I don't have, you know, we don't have time and I don't have, frankly, the rhetorical ability to get you excited enough about it. But isn't it amazing that everything good will seem like the most diluted, sugar-free squash you've ever tasted? <laughs> Think of your best experience. <laughs> will be like nothing compared to every experience in heaven. And, not, and this is not in some unfamiliar way. Taste and smell and touch. You know, Jesus said to Tom, touch my wounds. His touch, he ate food and wine. <laughs> I'll not drink again of the fruit of the vine until. Bodies. All that we love and is familiar and like who we are. It's, we're human beings, our soul and body together. So it's a, it's a wonderful hope, but it's, it's, a, it's this anti-sagisaical thing. This is the thing, like, when we, we think that somehow by being like, I go to heaven and be a spirit when I die, that's, that's more rational, it's easier for people to swallow. But actually, like, that's, that's the tendency, is this kind of anti-body tendency. But actually, we're robbing people of this amazing truth. That there's this thing to look forward to that they recognize. It's not some disembodied hope. It's not pie in the sky when you die. Or in, no, it is pie in the sky when you die. <laughs> <laughs> But it's actual pie. (laughs) (laughs) Surprised myself. (laughs) But there's other aspects of the adoption of the resurrection that just are mind-blowing. You know, what it tells us is that physicality, the solid stuff, is valuable. God in heaven, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, and then when he went back to heaven, did he get rid of it? Did he discard it? Did it get stripped away like some atmospheric reentry thing? No. Jesus Christ is human now and forever. The physical, our physicality is incredibly important. The, it tells us that the physical universe if you like, reveals something of God's glory that the spiritual created universe cannot. That human beings have a destiny where we get to know God in a way that no other creature, not dogs or cats, nor angels, nor cherubim or seraphim, dare we speak of them, will know him. Because only we in the whole universe are like physical and spiritual beings combined together. It tells us something that actually we're designed to, for this, for sonship. We don't have time to go into that. But you know. God has united himself to us in a way that he has not with any other creature. Astonishing. He's, he's in this like what Jesus is doing with the Sadducees. He's, he's you know, blowing, blowing up their expectations. It means we can embrace the world around us. It means we can, we can love food and trees and wine and you know, music and paintings and people and everything. You know, It means all this stuff is valuable. It gets the ground of our ethics. As I hinted at already, the ground of our ethics is the, the eternal destiny of the physical world. Don't worry if that doesn't fit in your head <laughs> right now. Because if you live by the light of it and it will bear fruit. It's, it's amazing stuff. It's, you know, it's why we Christians tend to bury their dead rather than burn them. Because we don't see the death as released from the body. You know, we don't discard the body. We, we uh, live in hope. 
It's why we honour our own bodies. It's why we treat them well and look after them. Because what we do now somehow counts for the future. In a way that's hard for us to understand, but, you know, it's there. There's amazing, amazing, you know, hope in there. So, it speaks to the resurrection, and, you know, there's not a lot of application there. I don't know if anyone's particularly struggling with that doctrine. Maybe it's the first time you thought about it for a while. But just as an illustration, really, of how important this point is, God wants to blow our minds. He doesn't want us to be sadducical. Does that make sense? And when you think about the resurrection, the more you think about it, you can tell I've thought about it a bit. You know, it raises your mind up to God. It sheds light on the world around you. So that's the first illustration. The second is perhaps a little bit more practical, I think, a bit more uh, landing kind of in our own experience. We see in the passage... Um, Jesus talking about marriage or the lack of marriage in heaven. And this is a kind of perfect example, a kind of uh, a focus, if you like, of um, an example in scripture where you could easily be sagisaical. You could read this and go, oh, I'm so disappointed <laughs> in what heaven is going to be like. Well, any married people who've wondered about the whole, you know, not being married in heaven business and thought, oh, that's a bit of a shame. Anyone? Just a few. <laughs> Abby's nodding vigorously on the second row. <laughs> but, you know, there is a... You know, you could easily be sadducical about that, couldn't you? And be like, oh, I'm disappointed. Or just, all oh, the world looks at it, frankly, and they're like, oh, there's Christians around it again. Sexless, you know, like joyless, uh, you know, anti-matter, anti-Christianity. You know, we're pagans, we're so liberated and free. Oh, Nonsense, but anyway. But you could look at that, right? And see, be anti-marriage. Oh, you're all celibate, and that's why all the Catholic priests are paedophiles, because they're celibate. And, you know, that's, the world says this stuff. Sadducaically. <laughs> yeah, an adverb, thank you. <laughs> the world says this stuff. Why? Because they don't get how great God is. When Jesus is not saying, there's no, no, when he says there's no marriage in heaven, neither married nor given in marriage. He's not just saying, like, there's no joy, there's no sex, there's no physicality. Of course he's not saying that. What nonsense that could, that would be. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if it was worse than this life, would it? By definition. They can no longer die if they're like the angels. It's not, it's not this spiritual thing. And it's not purely pragmatic either. It's not, oh, you know, because we won't die, there's no need for children to replace the dead people. That is, you know, that is a point. But that really is the most pragmatic thing you could possibly take away from Jesus. That's what Jesus says here. What he's saying is this incredible truth that actually, in this life, if you work really, really hard, and by God's grace, by some miracle of God's common grace, he can enable you to love just a little bit one person like God loves in marriage. But in heaven, in heaven, we will know each other and be known. We will see the value in an instant what now takes us a lifetime to learn. We will see in one another the beauty and all the glory of God refracted through each of our personalities all sin stripped away from you and from my eyes to see you. And we will love each other as God loves us. That's why, you know, 
it's be amazing. Really, really amazing. Heaven is really heavenly. Mind-blowingly heavenly. Will experience who God is in himself. This life of absolute self-giving that gives perfect joy and peace. Will experience the fullness of the life of God. God shares his very his very life with us. The Father giving all of himself to the Son. The Son seeing and giving himself completely back to the Father. And the life of the Spirit overflowing from him. Excuse me, struggling with my cold this morning. The power of... Now that truth, that we will see one another perfectly and participate in God's life, through marriage, this is, this is, this is why it's super rational. Through marriage, that pours into the present. When you begin to understand what we're made for, ultimately, this place where there is no marriage, it doesn't negate marriage. It doesn't undermine it or say, oh, it doesn't matter. It fills it with value because now you know what it's for. I am to love this one. I am to give myself completely to this one person so that I can begin to taste the life of heaven now through absolute self-giving. And so when you face the challenges of, you know, all the difficult stuff of working through that relationship, you know where it's headed and you know what's required of you. Isn't that wonderful? That's, it gives you that direction. It kind of gives you, orientates you. It, it helps you understand what it's for. Like the marriage is God's common grace for the world. You know, whether someone's a Christian or not, this is the amazing thing. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It's an image of the Trinity. That in that uniqueness and lifelongness, absolutely giving yourself one to another, mind, body, everything. There is a fruitfulness that brings into the world, if you like, uh, streams in the desert of triune love. Whether someone understands the doctrine, whether they're saved or not, doesn't matter. God's love is being poured into the world through marriage and through family. That is really clever. Plan of God, by the way. It's a restraint against evil. It creates beauty. It creates goodness. It upholds truth. It gives light to the world. It points people to God. It gives us the language to know him and understand him. It's amazing, amazing stuff. It helps us to understand how precious it is. It helps us to understand that because it's so precious, it's like the, the holy of holies, if you like, in the temple of creation, that actually when you go messing around with it, you might expect bad things to happen. This is why it's super rational. It helps us to understand the world around us to begin to see how severe the challenge the church faces is. When you mess around with gender, the sexuality, you know, we're not killed choice. We're not against freedom. It's not about those things. Christians, in our orthodoxy, the Bible God and his commands, he's not against those things. He's for them more than anybody else. For joy and pleasure and all those things. But he wants us to actually have it, not just have an illusion. He wants us to have, you know, the full fat, full sugar version, not the saccharine version that seems good and then, well, you know, is empty or worse, po- is poison, you know. 
it helps us to understand celibacy as well. Because only if something is, if you give up something that's rubbish, that's not really giving, it's not really a sacrifice, is it? But if you give up something that's incredibly valuable, it really helps you, you know, that's a sacrifice. But if you're in a situation where, you, if you're not married, the Bible says you shouldn't be in a sexual relationship. The world says, sadistically, what nonsense. How could you possibly survive? That's basically people's attitude, isn't it? But this truth helps you to see that if you're in that situation, you're single, you're unmarried, then chast- uh, celibacy for you is a calling whereby you are called to give your life for the sake of others as a sign of the kingdom to come. You know, it's not an opt-out clause for loving people. It's, it's an opt-in, but just not through marriage. And through that, in that, in that way, the glory of God is set forth in, in, in a variety of ways. So you see the value of this, you know, seeing there are things that are too big to fit in our head. So when it comes to those who are progressive, as so-called, in this, God, in this regard particularly, just to get specific now, can you see that there is Sadduceism going on? Wanting to be clever, wanting to be just, wanting to rescue people from unnecessary superstitious stuff, and quite frankly, probably well-intentioned too. They pick up the iPhone <laughs> and they bash it on the floor and they go, what a bloody rubbish that is, and they chuck it. Who are you going to listen to? The one in Scripture? The one who knows the power of God? The one who's seen how it works out? And seen the goodness and the beauty and the truth that it brings to the world? Or... Sadducee slash caveman. God wants to inoculate us against that that threat. So a small thought just to finish then. Just in regard to this uh, particular issue, if you're single, be encouraged in that pursuit of purity. That God has a purpose for that to buy your faith, to bring the future into the present, to bring that life of heaven into now, that resurrection life that Jesus is imagining for them. Yes, not through marriage, and yes, it's hard, but through your giving of yourself to the world around you, that life of heaven can be yours. Through, for those of you who are married, whatever the challenges you're facing, Purity, relationship pressures, the temptation towards uh, separation, whether it be just mentally or emotionally or actually, you know, uh, divorce or something like that. Remember what God is calling you to, what it's for. The temptation is this is too hard or it's too unrealistic or God is calling you to something beautiful and good and freedom giving and life giving that gives glory to Him and uh, builds amazing, amazing kingdom things in this world. And because of that, it's worth, worth the faith and the hard work that goes with it. He's holding out an opportunity to us all. And in a wider sense, he'd say to each of us, don't let your sight be dimmed. Whether it's marriage or 
some other doctrine, the Trinity, resurrection, something you read in scripture, some other challenge in your life. Don't let, whether it's a voice in your head or skeptics around you, dim your view of who God is. Walk in faith and walk in wonder. Your heavenly father delights to, del- to delight you, to blow your mind again and again and reward you at the end of it all with, I told you it was good, but I couldn't tell you how good it was going to be. That's what's waiting for us, isn't it? It's going to be so much better than even God is able to communicate now. He wants to invite us into this wonderful, trusting relationship where we have faith and understanding comes gradually. We look at the light and our eyes become accustomed and we can take in more and more of him. We'll find, C.S. Lewis says something like, uh, it's not that God finds our appetites too strong but too weak. You know, that's, that's how you say it, isn't it? Well, the Christians can't handle the pleasures of the world. So they don't drink, they don't do this, they don't do that. It's not that God finds our appetite too strong but too weak. We'll find that out in heaven when all our desires are, f- are fulfilled. We'll find out when the Lord comes again we drink the wine of the new covenant with him. We feast this heavenly banquet and our minds are blown and the trees of the fields will clap their hands and the hills and the valleys will break forth in song. Let's pray.